Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Rablick and thank you for joining me for this podcast. We've seen a lot of action uh, and, and movement in terms of economic debate during the COVID, uh, the COVID pandemic. A lot of companies are being affected and governments are having to manage things perhaps differently to the way they've had to in the past because of the nature of the pandemic. Some of the debate has gotten a little bit heated from time to time, uh, particularly around how governments ought to deal with it, whether whether it's okay to let some people in the population die off or whether it's okay to, to, to lock everything down for a long time uh, in order to get rid of the virus, along with the consequent economic effects. One of the people who's been doing this for a very, very long time, and he'd been uh, someone I've known for years, is Alan Kohler. Alan uh, has been the editor of various newspapers, appears on the National Broadcasters News Service on a nightly basis, and I'll let him tell you more about the other things, but we'll talk about COVID, we'll talk about modern monetary theory and a few other issues. Alan, thank you for joining me. Not at all, Tom. Now, there will be those listening to the podcast who may only be aware of you on the ABC or they've just heard your name. How would you describe your career on the back of an envelope if you had to explain it to someone who hasn't encountered you before? Uh, (laughs) Oh, well, I'd I'd say I've been fortunate. I um, started off as a financial journalist at the age of 18 and... um, uh, uh, Got a few interesting jobs. Um, started on the Financial Review uh, in '79. Uh, became editor of the Financial Review in the mid '80s. Um, became editor of the Age in the '90s, um, and then after that went to TV and combined TV with writing for newspapers. And uh, kind of have done that ever since. Really, since about 1995, I've been. Um, uh, combining television appearances of various sorts uh, with writing uh, columns. And the other thing I did was started a business in mid-2000, 2005, a newsletter for investors called Eureka Report. And then we did a um, we started a uh, uh, an online newspaper called Business Spectator, which um, and we sold that business um, in 2012. Um, and so, uh, and that, that business Eureka Report is still going and I'm still running it, but uh, it's owned by somebody else now. Um, and uh, so therefore, there, there you go. I'm running columns. I'm doing that. I'm, I'm very lucky to have uh, a few different outlets for, uh, for what I do and um, I find it very interesting. How did you fall into financial journalism, Alan? What, 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 how did that happen? Uh, well, that was because uh, that just happened to be where the vacancy was. I, I responded to an advertisement in the newspaper. Uh, I didn't realise it was in finance, and there it was. It was in finance, and so um, that's uh, that's where the job was. I mean, I've I've found it fascinating, um, and have you know uh, taught myself economics, um, finance in general, how the markets work. I've done uh, obviously. Um, what you might call a forty or fifty year university degree in uh, in all those subjects, <laughs> and um, uh, here I am. It's an interesting thing you've mentioned, and that there's a class of journalists I've watched closely over the years, including yourself, um, Janine Perrett, and others, um, people who were employed in media organisations uh, in the classic 
motives or cadetships and, and whatever have you, um, is something lost in people's curiosity when they do a degree from your observation as opposed to doing it the way you did it? Oh, no, not necessarily. I mean, uh, I think times change. Um, uh, I think it's fair to say that journalism switched during my lifetimes, changed from being a trade to a profession. Uh, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's sort of... Um, it means that you, you come into journalism with more education. I mean, I, I kind of, um, uh, you know, in some ways wish that I had uh, been to university and done a degree, but um, it didn't uh, didn't come up, and I don't think it's held me back. It's okay. Uh, so, look, it depends. It depends on the individual, really. I mean, uh, uh, um, good journalists uh, come from both ways, really. It, it's just um, it depends on the person. Yeah. Now, if we can pivot to the COVID-19 discussion, which has been fascinating to observe, and I've done my own bit of uh, pottering around and near-canning at audit space, which, which, by the way, was also an accident for me. I didn't know I'd start journalism there, Alan. Um, but you were recently charged with the offence of dabbling with fantasy economics, um, how do you plead? Uh, guilty as charge, Your Honour. Um, uh, I think, um, <laughs> look, uh, um, modern monetary theory, which is what uh, which is what I've been writing about lately, um, has been around a long time. In fact, it's really just a return to Keynesianism of the 1930s. And in some ways, uh, the reason it's popped up now is because is is for the same reason that uh, Keynes. Keynesian economics popped up in the 30s, which is in response to a crisis. Um, um, modern monetary theory was kind of invented in the 1990s uh, by a professor at the Newcastle University named Bill Mitchell and also a hedge fund manager named Warren Mosler. Who, and they kind of sat down and came up with the idea that, um, uh, which is in a sense a statement of the obvious, but nobody had really put it out before, uh, which is that a, uh, a government that controls its own sovereign money, uh, its own money, can um, uh, has no limitations on the amount it can spend. Now, uh, that's the reason people talk about that as a fantasy economics is because of the misunderstanding that what they're talking about is a money tree or a magic pudding, that there's no limitation, so the governments can just spend uh, money that they create without any consequences, which is not what they're saying. Uh, and everyone points to Weimar Germany or Zimbabwe or Venezuela, hyperinflation in those countries after they printed money to finance the government spending as being evidence that what these guys are talking about and other people are now talking about with modern monetary theory as being fantasy. Well, the thing is, what they, what they say is essentially the idea is that the restraint on government spending is not financial or the amount of money, but the amount of resources in the economy. And the reason those countries had hyperinflation was because um, the productive capacity of the economy was destroyed uh, by the policies, in the, in the case of Weimar Germany, by the war, um, in the case of Zimbabwe and Venezuela, by the policies of Mugabe and Hugo Chavez. And so... Um, uh, at the same time as they printed money to create uh, more demand, 
the supply capacity of the economy collapsed and therefore the demand bid up prices and they had hyperinflation. Um, but in a way, the fact that the government can and does print and create money is simply a statement of the obvious. Uh, the other thing that uh, modern monetary theory does is to say that Milton Friedman's proposition that inflation is always and everywhere an in, uh, a monetary phenomenon is not correct. It is a demand-supply phenomenon and money is not the issue. And um, so really, uh, modern monetary theory is not particularly fantasy. It's not particularly revolutionary. It's simply a statement of the obvious. The question is what you do with that, with that uh, understanding and if, of course, you go about printing money and creating demand without any without any thought as to the, the resources of the economy, then you will get hyperinflation, of course. And no one's saying that you no no one's saying that you won't. It strikes me though when we look at this issue, Alan, and we play with the ideas in the back of our head that we're also dealing with possibly conflicting, and I'd be interested in your perspective on this, possibly conflicting concepts on how we measure government performance. Because if I'm measuring the performance of a, of a listed company, for example, I'm doing so in accordance with a certain, certain kinds of parameters. Some of it's accounting, some of it's, you know, other other metrics that have emerged over time. Um, is there something in that observation that we, when people start talking about things as being fantasy economics, that they may be seeking some kind of measurement of performance that is easier for them to understand? Uh, sure, that's right. I think um, uh, a lot of people... Uh, a lot of people regard governments in the same way as they look at companies and they say that a surplus is a profit and a deficit is a loss. And therefore, if the company is, if the government is uh, running a deficit, then it's losing money. And, and you hear this all the time, that it's losing money and therefore that's a failure and it needs to, in time, pay back the deficits with, um, uh, with profits. You know, and the, the only kind of a good performance of a government is when it's running a surplus. Now, that's rubbish. It is simply not the case. Um, governments are not companies. They're not households. And um, you'll, if you look at a graph of uh, government uh, balances, government budget balances over time, you'll find that it's uh, vastly more often in deficit than it is in surplus. And that, um, that doesn't mean the government's going broke. Um, and it doesn't mean the government's failing. I mean, a deficit is simply a transfer of money from the from the public sector to the private sector, and a surplus is the withdrawal of money from the private sector into the public sector, uh, and that's simply it. And in a way, a, the deficit it, it creates demand, creates wealth in the private sector, um, and a surplus removes it. And that's really the fundamental kind of misunderstanding that a lot of people have. And um, when they talk about, you know, government deficits, oh, it's terrible. We have to, we have to run a surplus, and we have to get back to surplus as soon as possible. Now that's been vaguely kind of achievable um, with past economic cycles, um, so that you know, when when the, the government went into big 
deficit in the GFC, uh, that was the Labor government at the time, the, the Conservative coalition government said, you know, that was terrible and it was reckless spending and so on, and they kind of criticised the Labor Party and they said that we'll get you back to, um, we'll get you back to surplus. Now, they eventually were able to predict, they didn't actually get back to surplus, but they did in fact predict or budget for a surplus this year. Um, and of course, it's 12 years after the GFC. So it took a long time. Uh, and in the meantime, the coalition governments added a lot to the um, government debt uh, during that period. But nevertheless, they, after 12 years, they finally managed to forecast or budget for a surplus. Um, but what I think is uh, the situation now is that we're in a totally different environment. The, the pandemic is causing uh, government deficits that are vastly greater than anything they've seen before. And so uh, what I've been writing is that um, the government and everybody is going to have to think differently about things because the, these surpluses are not going to be paid back. I mean, um, you know, coming out of the GFC, the, the deficit, um, you know, was was in the tens of billions and the, the total government debt was about $240 billion. Um, it's now more than twice that, uh, but still... You know, vaguely, but this is before the before the pandemic. You know, vaguely paybackable, really. But we're going to end up with a trillion or maybe two trillion dollars worth of debt, and it isn't going to be paybackable. I mean, it's just not. There's not, and, and the the deficits are going to last for uh, for longer than last time. Um, so everyone's going to have to think differently about it. You can't sort of. No one's going to be able to come into government and say uh, that surplus, was, that that deficit was terrible, and we're going to have to we're going to pay it back. They're going to have to come out with something else, some other uh, uh, proposition. And um, my point is that, um, uh, that wh what I think all governments around the world are going to have to do is have the deficits funded by the Reserve Bank, by the, by the central bank. Now, um, that's already happening to a large extent in Europe and America where the central banks uh, are buying lots of government debt um, and so they've got um, the US Federal Reserve has about $7 trillion worth of government debt uh, on its balance sheet. In Australia, it's happening to a lesser extent, but the, but the Reserve Bank of Australia has about 60 or $70 billion worth of government debt on its balance sheet. Um, now, uh, obviously, the, government, the Reserve Bank is part of the government, right? So that, that 60 or $70 billion that is, has been bought by the Reserve Bank on the secondary market from owners of those bonds uh, using printed money, new fresh money, um, uh, that uh, is going to sit there. That is part of the government, right? The the government sort of owns its own debt. So uh, does that debt really exist anymore? Um, I would argue that it doesn't. Um, it's kind of within the government uh, now. So when it matures, it's, it's generally three to five year debt. So in three to five years, the debt is... Um, uh, repayable. Uh, the government has to pay back, you know, $100 per $100. So is it pay that to the Reserve Bank? Um, uh, and if so, uh, the Reserve Bank just pays it back as a dividend? Or does the Reserve Bank just cancel it? And how much in three to five years' time does the Reserve Bank own? Um, could, it, could the Reserve Bank own a trillion dollars of government debt, having created the money to, to buy it? Yes, it could, of course. Um, and what would happen then? 
um, does the money, does the debt just get cancelled? Well, it could be, or it could be repaid and the government gets the money back as a as a dividend. Alternatively, um, and this is something that's not that well understood, um, uh, the, the Reserve Bank is the government's banker. So when when the government uh, wants to spend money, uh, it sends an instruction to the Reserve Bank to pay it. And the Reserve Bank actually does pay all the money out. Um, generally, it just pays it, uh, it pays it out of new money. It creates money to, do, to pay the government's bills. And the government then refreshes its account with taxes or by issuing bonds. And so what if it doesn't have enough taxes and enough bonds? It just runs an overdraft. And so maybe the debt could be, over time, an overdraft with the Reserve Bank. Um, so is that real government debt, an overdraft with yourself? I'm just kind of raising a lot of these questions. I think that um, we're going to have to think about uh, how we th how we look at this stuff in the future because yeah. because the debt is just too big. The thing that you've said, and this is a point that I think is critical from just the previous answer, and that is you said people need to start thinking differently about things. Um, there are several cohorts that are problematic in, in that proposition, one of which is the politicians who, are, who tend to spend a bit of time as part of their trade whacking each other over the head. And the other cohort of significance to me in any case is, um, is the media pack. How do we get people, you say they need to think differently. Well, let me propose a different construct on this and suggest that that is the, the way in which you suggest they need to start thinking is perhaps the way they should have been thinking all along. Oh, Am yeah, right? you could, well, yeah, you could say that. I mean, look, the thing is that uh, a lot of this is uh, a fundamental challenge to uh, the precepts of capitalism itself. I mean, the whole idea of capitalism is that government is bad, private sector is good. Uh, as Ronald Reagan said, government is the uh, problem, not the solution, and so on. I mean, that's framed the whole kind of uh, Western capitalist um, uh, paradigm for decades, really, um, that, uh, yeah. that the way that capitalism works is the government's got to get out of the way. Well, uh, um, I, I mean, I think that uh, a lot of this stuff will take a long time to uh, to deal with. I mean, obviously, at the moment, government is uh, is central, but government is propping up economies all around the world. Um, we, you know, without the government, job keeper, job keepers, job seeker supplements, without you know the, the, what the, all the things the government is doing in Australia, the economy would be an absolute basket case right now. So, in some ways, the the economy at the moment is entirely uh, dependent on the government's capitalism doesn't exist as as we speak and not just here but everywhere really capitalism for the moment is um, is taking a rest it's not it's not working it's because of the pa because of the pandemic well no because of the pandemic and it's not you know it's it's yeah. so so uh, what i'm saying is that um, it'll take a it'll take a long time for these these kind of uh, this way of thinking to to change um but I, th I just think it'll it'll probably have to change. Um, 
particularly if there's no vaccine for a while and, you know, we keep going in, back into lockdown and, you know, the, the sort of social distancing lasts for a long time, I, I mean, uh, as I think it might, um, you know, a year or two down the track, it's um, everyone's going to have to be uh, thinking slightly differently about uh, about how the economy works. It's, it also leads, doesn't it, Alan, into the way in which... Uh, media organisations frame the discussions that are happening, uh, whether it be the headlines, whether it be the way journalists write about things. Uh, because that's the way the community sees the world in part. It's through what you know people like you and I do. Um, and if you're in the Canberra bubble, uh, I'm sort of in the Fortress Tom bubble at the moment, but if you're in the Canberra bubble, you're exposed to a limited number of influences that might um, color the way in which you may tell the story. Well, yeah, it's not just—it's we... just, just—it's not just the media; it's the economic community as well. I mean, everyone's kind of in a uh, in a fairly traditional way of thinking, and um, it's called mainstream economics for a reason. I mean, I think that um, everyone's got a got a pretty solid consensus of the way the world works. Um, and you know we're only six months into this pandemic, and everyone's everything's up in the air, and still everyone's kind of uh, still thinking that we're going to get back to normal. And look, maybe we will, and I'm wrong. And but I just think that um, you know, in twelve months' time, two years' time, when the deficits are still 150 billion dollars a year, and um, you know the de- debt is still blowing out, um, there's going to have to be uh, going to have to be a reassessment of um, of the way the economy actually does work. You've actually done some... One of the things I wanted to touch on with you uh, in this conversation is some of the work you've done looking at the cost of a business opening up and the cost of the restrictions. You did a fascinating piece the other weekend on the ABC News. I wouldn't mind if you took me through what inspired that in terms of opening up a a restaurant or a, a coffee shop or whatever else. Um, how did you how did you start that process? Well, it was just I'd, I'd been reading about the um, the four square meter rule, which is that each restaurant needs to um, devote four square meters to each of its diners. And I thought uh, it occurred to me, well, what what's the rent on four square meters, and what does each diner have to eat to pay the rent? And I just I just kind of started to investigate that as to what the, what's the typical rent, um, and uh, thought that'd make a nice. TV spot um, to figure out what I had to eat in order to pay the rent on my four square meters. Um, so uh, you know, and, and talking to, I, I spoke to quite a few restaurateurs, and you know, they're all kind of tearing their hair out because uh, they can't run their business uh, with that kind of spacing of people in the restaurant. Uh, now, a lot of them are surviving at the moment on takeaway. Um, so, you know, I went down to my local Malaysian the other day to get a takeaway meal and they've just taken their chairs out of the taken the chairs out of the place. They don't have any chairs at all. They're doing exclusively takeaway and they're flat out. Um, so good luck to them. That's great. Um, they're fine. Uh, I've seen I've seen other restaurants that have gotten rid of all their chairs uh, and just doing takeaway. And maybe, you know, maybe that's going to work for a lot of restaurants. Um, I, more broadly, though, um, I think 
uh, one of the things that's going on is that the the pandemic is affecting uh, specific businesses, but not all businesses. I mean, in a normal recession, pretty much everyone gets whacked. Um, but this time, it's quite um, it's quite specific. It's hospitality, it's restaurants, it's tourism businesses. There is no tourism anymore. So those restaurants, those businesses that rely on tourism are buggered. Um, the restaurants, the, the businesses that rely on travel, um, such as airports, uh, airlines, they're basically shut down. Um, You've got the arts sector too, which is completely arts, decimated, basically. Exactly. So all, all, the, all the businesses that rely on people sitting close together, such as sport, arts, entertainment, uh, hospitality, and those that rely on people travelling uh, uh, are out of luck. They're not. They're they're in trouble, and they're having to find some other way to do it. Now, one of, one of the problems that um, I've been working on for a column uh, this week is that the government's uh, support uh, is not particularly targeted. It's general. They're spraying money uh, everywhere, hoping that it finds its way to those who need it, um, which I think is the wrong way to go. I mean, it's just. Um, you know, a lot of the money is being wasted. Um, a lot of the money is not getting uh, enough. So because they, so the JobKeeper package is fifteen hundred dollars per fortnight for everybody who qualifies, which is that um, you know, if they're a small business, the revenue's down thirty percent. If it's a large business, revenue down fifty percent. Um, a lot of companies, a lot of businesses, the revenue's down twenty five percent, and they're just as uh, they're in just as much trouble, but they don't qualify. Um, uh, and other other businesses, uh, individuals, were getting paid uh, less than fifteen hundred dollars a fortnight, and now they're suddenly getting fifteen hundred dollars a fortnight. So it's a pay rise. So it's a really blunt instrument the, the government support, and we're you know we're hearing about all sorts of businesses that are that are still in trouble. They're not getting the support they need, and um, I think this is going to become not only a, a sort of a personal tragedy for a lot of these people but also an economic problem because a lot of businesses are going to close permanently because they just can't stay they can't keep going um and uh i think that's going to show up in economic data at some point um so look yeah i I think there's there's a real problem in the way that it's being dealt with the the other week there was a harris harris coffee released a a piece of survey work they had done by YouGov Galaxy, which was quite remarkable in terms of the um, there's a small business component of it. 204 small businesses, I gather they would have been talking to cafes. Uh, essentially, the majority of them said they're unlikely to last more than six months without uh, third-party assistance. In other words... They're looking at reopening. People are looking at reopening and what reopening might mean, but they don't think they're going to survive. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, that's a relatively common story, um, and you know, and to some extent, it's um, uh, due in part to people's not wanting to go out and not risk their health. Um, it's not just about government mandated lockdowns, um, you know, which come and go, uh, obviously, uh, but people. Uh, a lot of people are wary about, um, you know, sitting close together with other people. So I think that, and that's going to last a long time. 
So yeah, look, I think um, I, I think there will be a lot of businesses that close permanently, and um, you know I've seen estimates of uh, of per, uh, forecasts of permanent restaurant closures that tend to between ten and twenty five percent of all restaurants, um, and that's a lot of employment. And then there's other there's other associated issues like you know, what do what do if we take arts which we mentioned earlier. What do people do to innovate? Do they live stream? What does that mean financially? Uh, and also, what does that mean for other people who are employed in the arts? If you go down the live streaming route, you're not going to need you're not going to need bar staff if all you're doing is live streaming for a period of time. No, exactly. And a lot of this a lot of this stuff is going to take a while to shake out. I mean, everyone uh, is pretty much kind of work living day to day at the moment, trying to kind of get by and. Focusing on the near, focusing on the here and now, but the um, the sort of big picture of the things you're talking about and um, the kind of impact, permanent impact on a lot of uh, industries, won't become clear for a few months. And um, you know, at that point, we'll kind of see what happens. Uh, Alan, um, we've spoken a lot about impacts. We've spoken a bit about you know the, the way in which we need to think about the economy. Um, the one thing I need to ask you before we close is: Is this the worst you've ever seen it in your career? You've been watching the thing. You've been watching economics and business for a very long time. Uh, well, this is my first pandemic, um, so yeah, it's it's certainly <laughs> it's certainly different, um, and it's uh, certainly the sharpest, deepest recession that I've lived through, and and um, I was a. I was kind of 11 years old in the, in the recession of 1961 and my father went broke at that point. Um, you know, there was the recessions in the 70s, recession of the 80s. This is by far the deepest. Um, but a lot of the predictions, most of the predictions are that, um, you know, uh, it's going to be short-lived, which, um, you know, maybe maybe it's true. I don't know. We'll find out. In September, what the GDP did in the June quarter, um, so that's a fair way off. Uh, and then September quarter, will, will, will the September quarter be positive? Uh, well, um, it'll be positive growth because it's coming off of such a low base in the June quarter. Um, yeah. But there'll be, uh, but there'll be a permanent loss of um, a permanent loss of output uh, that will carry forward, and we won't know what happened in the September quarter. Um, you know, for eight months or so. So look, it's it's a very slow moving thing. This, but it's there, there's something. And October is going to be problematic because we'll probably see the banks and others start to start to ask people a few questions. I know that they've loosened things up a little bit and they've offered a bit more flexibility in terms of loan repayment, but that's not going to last forever, is it? Uh, no, well, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, the banks are uh, uh, applying a lot of forbearance on loan repayments for the moment. Um, nobody needs to pay back their loan, as a result of which the property market has not collapsed um, and the banks are still solvent. Um, but there's apparently something like $240 billion worth of loans that are um, uh, that are on forbearance. Now, if uh, if those loans just say if those loans became impaired and, there, and therefore had to be written off the capital, uh, I think the capital of the banks, the Australian banking sector, would mostly disappear. 
and the banks would be mm-hmm. insolvent. So uh, everyone's hoping that uh, those people who are currently on deferred repayments can start repaying because if they can't, then the banking sector, the property sector, everyone's in a lot of trouble. Alan, one of the thing, one of the good things about talking to you is you bring a, a as with any one of your generation, uh, you bring a really deep uh, perspective in terms of analysis to all of this. Where can people, where can people who haven't read you before or seen you before, uh, look up your material? Um. Uh, unfortunately, it's all behind paywalls. What I write is the the Australian. I write for the Australian, which is a subscription newspaper. I do two columns a week for them uh, on a Saturday and a Monday, and um, I also write for Eureka Report, which is also a subscription product, three hundred and thirty dollars per year, um, which is an absolute bargain, if I may say. Um, uh, and on the ABC News, which uh, you obviously have to be in Australia to check that out, which a lot of people are. So therefore, so that's it. Um, that's where you find my stuff. There you go. Alan Collin, thank you so much for joining me. Not at all. Thanks, Tom.